Welcome back to Questions from the Pew. This episode is actually part two in a conversation Reichert and I had with Dr. Michael O. Emerson. Uh, if you haven't listened to part one, feel free to go back and listen to that episode before you listen to this one, uh, since it'll have some helpful background information for this conversation. Uh, so with that, enjoy the show. We're a forum for discussion on the issues that are ruminating in the minds of churchgoers, but that are often not raised from the pulpit. Too long has the church shied away from grappling with tough questions and nuanced issues. We're your hosts. I'm Riker Zalameda. I'm Lucas Manning. Welcome to Questions from the Pew, where faith and culture meet. one of the things because uh, I've been involved so I'm at like a very white church now but I've been involved with you know kind of the multicultural church thing mostly with white led uh, pastors at the helm um, and one of the I guess one of the cries is always like for unity right like we need yeah. to all come together and be unified which is great uh, and I agree um, but then I think the detraction from that is, or like the what people of color sometimes hear is you just need to conform to what we're doing. That's how we, you know, stay unified. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah. So I don't, I guess maybe I'm getting a little bit into the application, which maybe that's further than your research goes, but I just, how can, uh, I guess how can members of white members of multicultural churches that are white led or just white churches, uh, I don't know, maybe help that. I don't help their church mates, I think most of our audience is aware of these kind of things, you know, um, and it's not like we have to convince them that there actually is a problem, you know, <laughs> but it's right. like, how do we yeah. go about addressing it? You know? Yeah. I, I always use the most basic example and maybe it's even getting outdated with technological change, but I usually say if I stole your TV and then um, I, after a while say, Hey, I'm sorry, I stole your TV. Let's get, <laughs> we need to be unified. We need to be together. And then you, you have the audacity to say, uh, sure, but back. could I have my TV back <laughs> yeah. first? Right? Uh, then I say, you're being ridiculous. You're you're hurting the cause of Christ. I'm asking to unify, and you're rejecting that, right? That and that's what literally happens. Yeah, yeah. And and then in my example, in a way, is uh, does work because so many people that were part of a category of people who stole the TV are unwilling to say the TV was ever stolen, mm -hmm. yeah. and so there is no unity. And there can't be unity until we deal with the injustice. I, it's just that simple. So it's it's a very false thing to call for unity until you deal with the injustice. And if you think there is no injustice or it already got rectified, ask your brothers and sisters of different backgrounds. And if they say you're wrong, believe them. It's just that simple. Totally. Hmm. I wonder if you could talk us through just the passive and active components in this whole conversation so i think like for what you just said specifically in terms of addressing the injustice um if we you know if you know both quote-unquote sides can agree that there has been injustice do we write it actively or do we 
just let it correct itself, mm-hmm. you know, a passive thing. And then, you know, a second kind of flip side of that, when you talk about race and religion being entangled, historically, has that happened passively, actively? Is that, you know, actively or passively happening? That sort of thing. I know there, yeah. I asked you just two questions there, but. <laughs> you know, I, uh, so let me see if, to get to where we are now was very active to link race and religion to to uh, spiritualize or religionize race. It now you don't have to be active. It's so ingrained and so passed on and um, part of laws and part of definitely part of our culture that unless you uh, directly try to walk a different way, you can just passively you'll just passively be part of it and support it. Um, and this is even. Uh, people of color to uh, not knowing that they are not it happens sometimes okay your first question was a little bit different and I'm trying to remember it can you repeat it yeah um, in terms of addressing you know the agreed upon injustice that has happened um, how do oh active or uh, yeah right I gotcha yeah Okay, so again, I always use this example, you know, if I have cancer, I can't just hope it goes away. It doesn't. And, 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 and injustice is a cancer, it's an evil. And so it has to be actively addressed. And that's the difficult part. I'm part of a, a Bible study. Uh, and they, they knew me in a previous life. So then when they found out what I do for a living, they wanted to take a one Bible study and talk about race. And it quickly went, it's all, all, all and this Bible study is all white. It quickly went to proclamations of how far they're willing to go, but where they will not. So right away, it was brought up that we would never support reparations. That's ridiculous and so on. Without really defining what reparations is or anything, that's the problem though, right? Because again, that's saying, I will not give you the TV back, but I, I want to address inequality. But not if you ask for my TV back. It's my TV. And in fact, I didn't get this TV from you. I got it from my great-grandfather. That's who gave me this TV. I know it can't be because it wasn't invented yet, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. So that that is – there is active resistance, in other mm. words. It is extremely active. And the more it gets pushed on, the more active it becomes. And that's why in the last few years – this resistance and the move to the extremes, further right, further left, because there's actually been a challenge. And so the defenses must arise. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting that you bring up reparations too. Um, part of what sparked this series that we're having in the podcast is uh, Jamar Tisby's book, um, The Color of Compromise, where he traces uh, it's pretty pop, like a popular level book, which is great. Uh, and he traces um, just some of the ways that the white church has uh, compromised <laughs> to get where we are today. Um, and he, well, he talks about, uh, I don't know if he concedes this, but like I got the idea when I was reading his last chapter about what to do about it is it's kind of like civil reparation seems like it's a no-go. It's never going <laughs> to happen. Uh, but he brings up like the possibility of like ecclesial reparations. So it's like, imagine if, uh, you know, wealthy white churches all, you know, pulled their resources and paid off, you know, uh, just like debt from, uh, you know, maybe a black community that borders them or something like that. That's right. Um, where it's like, we can actually 
I don't know, make those the church itself outside of the civil authorities can can make some of that happen. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, and may, once again, maybe this is beyond the scope of your research, but I don't. Did you did you encounter any? Uh, or maybe that's why you're writing the book is you didn't encounter any. But did you encounter any movements like that uh, where it was a, I guess, a church trying to, and maybe reparations is the wrong word, but, um, or maybe it's the right word. Yeah, I don't know. Ecclesial reparations. Did you see that at all? <laughs> I want to be careful here because uh, I haven't seen the whole. So there may sure. be somebody listening when I answer this, say, but, but I know of a church that is. Sure. I don't know of a church that is seriously. I know of churches that do charity, which are kind of what I would say they're important, but they're band-aids. They're not going to fix the structural sure. issues, but they're going to deal with the outcomes of those structural issues and just try to do patchwork. You know, like yeah. soup kitchens are important, but they obviously don't solve why there's hunger, right? They just sure. deal with the fact sure. that there's hunger and try to get people the next day. So, um, I'd seen them or two, like where uh, some churches might say, hey, um, let's put our money in black-owned banks. Um, and then that could be support and that will uh, bring more money into black communities. Sure. That's That would be the extent. And I don't think they were all that successful. It's just more kind of on a discussion and some early attempts. Sure. So, yeah. And I hope I'm, I'm oversimplifying for people that you know of something that's deeper sure. maybe they can share and that would give us all hope and also a path i would love some hope and a path yes <laughs> that'd be great how does one avoid like the problem of again the simplification of things of um of like virtue signaling um mm -hmm. whether whether purposeful or not um you know you talked about a, a kind of a band-aid uh solution i feel like um yeah it seems to me that those waters can really be muddied if there is a muddy understanding or an unclear understanding of what the issue is. And that's part of the problem, because when you actually survey people and ask them, there's a muddied understanding of what, and just such divergent understandings of what the issue is. Mm -hmm. So that's important because most people see themselves as, um, it's hard to ever meet somebody who thinks they're a racist or that they do things that harm or lead to greater racial division or that are intending to do that. It's just very rare. Most everybody uh, has good intent and sees themselves as trying to do things for good intent. Even uh, if you're standing up for the religion of whiteness, they would see it as standing up for what God wants or what made this nation great or something. So there's the rub. We can't, I mean, until we can even just talk about what the problem is there's no way we move forward now social media man 
I, I got completely off of social media in, in 2020 at some point because you talked about virtual virtue signaling. Problem with social media is it's just that every time something happens, you got to go on there and you got a virtue signal that you stand in this direction or that mm. direction. Yeah. And if you don't, they're like, oh, people are supposedly wondering, well, where do you really stand? Or you're not with us or, and you spend, what a waste of time. I mean, come on. I, what do I, what I have to say? Let's address the issues. Let's talk about what the issues are. I'll just say, I think that's a horrible thing that happened there. Of course, it's a horrible thing that happened there. That's yeah. good. I'm wondering too. I I feel like we kind of got your uh, like your thesis. It would be great to hear. I don't know, some. I guess some of like the uh, some of the points that led up to the conclusion of mm-hmm. of you know this idea of the white the religion of whiteness. It'd be great to hear some of the points that got you there. Sure. So let me just uh, briefly summarize it again. If people have forgotten religion of whiteness. So it's, we're saying it's like a disfiguring of historical Christianity, so much so that you can either see it as a competing religion or something like accepting a foreign God within. It's almost like bringing Baal into Christianity in the old times. Uh, and that the things get so intertwined that it becomes an understanding in many white churches of what Christianity is. Okay, so like any religion, let me just say that any religion has to have sacred symbols, things that it uses to worship the ultimate. Um, and then it has beliefs, it has practices, and ultimately has social organization too. But so the sacred symbols in the religion of whiteness is a white Jesus. Okay, it's very important that Jesus is white. And you know, you can really see defenses when Jesus is shown in another way. It's seen as almost hypocritical by followers of this religion and um, then you have the merging of the cross and the flag. They become almost the same thing. And in fact, I've seen in people's yards <laughs> crosses that are the American flag. So yeah. they are the same thing. Sure. And then um, a new kind of one emerging is firearms, um, which kind of symbolizes power and the ability to defend and the willingness to religion. So firearms become sacred, the defense of freedom of firearms without uh, okay, so beliefs, which I think is more interesting, but uh, we argue that there's six beliefs in this religion. One, of course, is a commitment to whiteness, although people don't normally know they're committed to whiteness. They're committed to whatever they think is right, but it's a version of what's right. Sure. Again, if we go back to our Lecrae example, two, and this is interesting because this is very different than Christianity. God is on the side of the dominant group. How do you know that God is with you? Because you are blessed. You have been given things. You have more things than other people. How do we know our country is blessed? Because we are richer than other countries. Boy, it's hard to find much in the Bible that way. I mean, you can find a verse or two that says, once in a while, God's going to give you things when you need it. But (laughs) that God's on the side of the dominant group, mostly it argues God's with the marginalized, right? Yes. Third, that whiteness is universal. So that means that you don't talk about whiteness. You just talk about what's ultimately true. And so you you, you merge them. Mm-hmm. Um, centering white understandings, but you never say they're white understandings. Sure. So you don't, you have theology and then you have black theology and you have womanist theology and you don't have white theology. That would 
sounds funny to people, at least to white folks, it sounds ridiculous. Yeah. There's just theology. Uh, and one of those beliefs is white nationalism. So we see how we see it as one of them. Sure. And then also a doctrine of infer inferiority, of course, of other people. So other people can never quite be white, but they can, if they accept white beliefs and teachings, they can be kind of proxy to. Okay, and then um, five practices. Uh, so one is a highly selective use of biblical scriptures. And I'm going to give you an example when we test that in a moment. Two is what we call epistemology of ignorance. A lot of big words, you know, epistemology, but it's, epistemology is how we come to know. So think about this, the epistemology, how we come to know what we don't know. So that it's an achievement in our society, which has had racial division and injustice since the get-go, that every generation of college students that comes into my class in race and ethnicity, the white students don't really know that all this was happening and it's still here today and they're shocked. That is an achievement and it's done through segregation. It's done through uh, removing things that used to be in textbooks or not allowing things in textbooks. It's an epistemology of ignorance that we're not going to know about it. Mm. And that, that serves a very important practice uh, for keeping this religion going. A veneration of the sacred symbols that we talked about, actively protecting whiteness so that when it's attacked, you will do whatever. And we have uh, parts of a couple chapters actually looking at, you know, the various ways that faith is defended. Um, so let me give you an example. So we said a practice of highly selective use of Christian biblical scriptures. So we created what we thought would be kind of a set of test cases. So, and then we had... Um, a comparison so we took some verses and i was saying when we do it online it lets us be more flexible in what we can do so so we asked them four questions three of which had to do with uh how we are instructed as believers to react to other groups so one example is acts six where there's ethnic conflict the greek uh, christians believe that their widows are not being equally cared for and the solution given is to say, well, choose seven people among yourselves, and then you make sure they receive what they should. So we, we have a verse there, and then we say, therefore, it's good to do that, basically. Just kind of restate the verse. Sure. And then ask for agreement or disagreement. Um, we also had a control question, which was very important for us to, to do what we're going to, I'm going to describe here in a moment. And the control question was a personal piety. So rather than being about how we should act with other groups. It asks, uh, it just says, here's a verse from Paul saying we shouldn't use unwholesome words. You know, don't swear. So basically we say, therefore it's good not to use unwholesome words, not to swear. Okay. When we then looked at the responses and keep in mind, the only people that got those questions are practicing Christians. This means they said they're Christian. This means that they attend church at least monthly, and they say their faith is very important to them. Practicing Christians who say the Bible should always be used to be determined right and wrong. When we looked at their responses by racial group, what we predicted would happen, happened. Because of this highly selective use of Christian biblical scripture practices. So you would assume that 
Christians across the board would agree that's what the Bible says, because we're just restating what the Bible says. For our control question, um, should you not swear, uh, the majority of all Christian groups, whether white, black, Hispanic, Asian, multiracial, said, yep, that's what the Bible says. But on the other three questions, everybody said, yep, that's what the Bible says, except for white Christians. Only about a third actually strongly agreed that's what the Bible teaches. And that's what we would have expected. There's something different. And the reason is because they've got a either a different component of their Christianity, this religion of whiteness, or it's uh, something so dominant, it's a more important religion even than Christianity when they butt heads. So we do a series of those kind of tests and sure. find support over and over and over again for this idea. No, I mean, that's, that's yeah, astonishing to hear. I guess it's not surprising, but it is astonishing. <laughs> yeah. forward then what would it and stop me if um we can hold off on this question if we feel like it's a little premature to ask but what would it look like then for what you say has been um entangled race and religion to be untangled mm -hmm. like we've you've talked us through what that looks like and you know at a uh, at a local level so what would it look like for those to be um, yeah, disentangled. Yeah, so it's the first thing, the first step is that we've got to name it, right? You can't untangle it till you know it's there. So that's why it's really important that we try to spend a lot of time being very careful saying, here's what it is. Here's how you know what it is. Here's how you know when it's being defended, uh, which is a really a good example or case that it does exist and that it's extremely important to people. And then to start thinking about how would we teach differently so that people can see that isn't really authentic Christianity? That's something that got woven in. It may be what you've learned since you were born or since you started practicing this version of Christianity. But if we are wanting to be authentic Christians, mm -hmm. then we're going to want to cast this intruder out. That's what this is. It's an intruder that doesn't belong in our churches. Mm -hmm. I mean, what does race have to do with Christianity? It has nothing to do with Christianity. Race came along after Christianity was, you know, 1,400 years old yeah. or something. Well established. Yeah, yeah, well established. So I always, when people say Christianity is a white man's religion, no, it's not. White <laughs> men took it and twisted it uh, somewhere along the way, but it's, mm -hmm. it was there long before white men, that concept <laughs> yeah. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then ultimately what we're arguing, this is so interesting, by the way, <laughs> we, in our last chapter, we, we argue this, we say, uh, we're going to have to tell a new story. 
And the new story is going to be a story that doesn't have this religion of whiteness. And the, the new story will have to be told principally by people of color. And we recommend 40 Christian books that are trying to tell the story apart from this religion of whiteness. Mm. And uh, <laughs> we're publishing with uh, an academic press and we're just told you can't you can't put that in an academic book you know you can that's a that's a christian thing you can talk about that somewhere else but mm -hmm. so it won't be in the book itself but we'll uh. find some way to communicate it mm -hmm. yeah i feel like i don't know i don't know if you have too much left Riker, but i feel like dr emerson has given me a lot to, to think about <laughs> uh, yeah uh maybe one i i do have one last thing we uh we previously interviewed uh, Dr. Malcolm Foley, who is a professor at Baylor, uh, which is where uh, Riker's at. Um, and uh, one of, so he, his dissertation was in spectacle lynchings from 1890 to, I think, 1919? I think that might be right. Not, maybe, maybe 1890? I don't know. In there somewhere. Okay. Um, and the black church's like, response to it. Um, and one of, I guess, the most, uh, I guess, sobering and, or not, I don't know if sobering is the right word. Uh, I guess one of the most disheartening, but also truthful things that he seemed to talk about was basically that the, the racial progress, you know, if you want to call it that, I'm doing it in quotes for people listening, uh, that we've seen in the United States has always only like advanced due to like white self-interest. Mm -hmm. So for instance, spectacle lynchings in the South stopped because too many black people were leaving and it's, it's just bad for business. We, we need people to stay. Um, and then like, for instance, civil rights, uh, there's international pressures yeah. uh, with uh, U.S. alliances from other nations uh, to, to, you know, expand civil rights. Um, so I'm just, I guess if you could talk about maybe how that, or if if you hold to that same perspective, uh, or if you have a more optimistic view, um, or and if your research has informed that in any way. Yeah, no, I I fully hold to that, and you know, a number of scholars. I think of um, uh, let's see, there was a, a well-known scholar from Harvard uh, named William Julius Wilson who said that's such established fact that we should just accept it. And we have to think of any proposal to address racial inequality has to basically be masked as something that does help everybody, like social security or highways or things that help everybody, but they disproportionately help people say that are in more need. That's what he said is the, the true public policies that we're going to have to develop. We can never succeed with public policies that are designed specifically for certain people groups that do not also benefit whites. Painful in some ways, but accurate. Yeah. I don't know if that's a great place to end. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, maybe we'll, we'll ask this as a final question then. Um, what would be, I guess, after our conversation, what would be the last word you'd want to leave to the American church, to its yeah. church leaders, especially after, you know, what you've studied. As odd as it seems, writing this book left me with more hope than I started with. So let me show you why. And let me, I want to add this. We have a couple chapters which were really painful to write because we had to make this conclusion that 
for Christians of color, if they are unwilling to sufficiently venerate whiteness, this religion of whiteness, then they will be, they will suffer the effects. They will be shunned. They will be ridiculed. They will have their faith challenged. They will be gaslighted. And it happens over and over. And we interviewed so many people like that. But we also um, interviewed several white Christians who also did not accept the religion of whiteness. And they suffered basically the exact same things. They lost their jobs in Christian organizations. They were um, shunned. They were cast away from their social groups, on and on. So a couple of things. Why, why is there hope? Uh, we have a pastor uh, in the book saying, I don't understand this God that white people worship. I don't understand. It makes me wonder about my Christian faith. My hope is this. What this book does is it shows you it isn't a Christian faith. It is a different religion. And when we can see that these horrible things that get done now and have been done are motivated by this religion of whiteness, not Christianity, then we can have hope of trying to unite around Christianity. And who should do the uniting? The people who are unwilling to venerate whiteness, who are not going to walk with this religion anymore. You're going to be cast aside, whether you're a person of color, whether you're white, doesn't matter. So those are the people who need to come together and support each other, trying to live authentic Christianity. And those are the people who get to then start creating the new story. And the new story is really retelling the old story, right? It's when Jesus came, same thing was happening. And he, Paul and all them, they're saying, stop being your ethnic. Stop it. That's not Christianity. I know it's a new way of thinking. We have to have that same kind of thinking, but we can do it. No, that's a good word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Dr. Emerson. Yeah, Honestly, we appreciate your time. It's really helpful. It's Yeah, it's always incredible getting to talk yeah. to you. And I, yeah, I'm looking forward to the book coming out. Yeah, when can we expect the, uh, the book to release? Book comes out in February, and they've changed the name to The Religion of Whiteness. I said, just say what it is. Okay. So there it is. <laughs> uh, subtitle, How... Faith distorts American Christianity, I think, is what it is. Or, no, not how faith, how racism distorts American Christianity. Yeah. That's great. Well, great. Well, Excited we're looking it. forward to, to reading that when it does come out. Um, and yeah, like, like Luke said, we really appreciate your taking some time out of your day to, to talk with us about this important issue. And uh, yeah, thanks again for joining us today. Yay. Appreciate it. And congratulations on six seasons. That's impressive. <laughs> Hey, thanks. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> thanks for listening to another episode. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do so on Patreon. It's just www.patreon.com slash questions from the pew. If you can't support us financially, please give us a good rating or review on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, and that will help others find our podcast. Also, please comment and ask questions. You can do that by following and messaging us on Facebook or Instagram. You can also leave us a short voice message or text message at 312-725-2995. If you do leave a voicemail, please keep it under 30 seconds and tell us your name and where you're from. We'd love to include your voicemail in our Q&R episodes, but if you prefer for us not to, just let us know and we'll include your question in another way and without giving your information. The same goes for any messages you send us on social media or through text. This has been Questions from the Pew podcast in the World Outspoken Network. 
To learn more about World Outspoken and its mission to prepare the Mestizo Church for cultural change, visit www.worldoutspoken.com. For questions from the Pew, I'm Riker Zalameta. I'm Lucas Manning. We'll see you next time. Bye.